Hey, Eric. Hi, Kate. So I'm really excited about our discussion with uh, Dr. Thibodeau and Dr. Hulafel today around, of course, the topic that everyone is talking about, which is um, COVID-19. Yeah, this is uh, what we're going to call a bonus podcast. Um, last time we recorded was about a month ago, and I was missing you. You were off on vacation, and yes, we had, I a, was. had a great conversation with Dr. Hulefeld. And um, I think at the time, we sensed that something was changing. This was, uh, this was a Tuesday, four weeks ago, and uh, certainly three days later, things were really starting to change. So um, we thought we'd get together for a great discussion about COVID-19, where we're at both uh, with the global pandemic and how it's impacting our community and here at York Hospital. So uh, really look forward to that. Me too, Eric. I hope you're, I hope you're well, you and your family. Oh, thank you. You too. Hi, I'm Kate Ford. And I'm Eric Fogg. Welcome to C-Town. In each episode, we will discuss all things York Hospital, past, present, and future, as well as current medical topics to help us navigate that sometimes confusing world of healthcare. So let's get into the conversation here pretty quick because... Um, there's some really important information we want to talk about. And uh, we have two fantastic guests this afternoon. They're going to seem really familiar to you because they've, uh, they've been guests on here before. Dr. Thibodeau has set the record now for most guest visits. <laughs> and this makes Dr. Hulefeld uh, second in line. Uh, we thought it was important to bring these two guests along because they're literally uh, on the front line of this uh, global pandemic as it relates to our hospital here at York Hospital. Uh, as you remember, Dr. Thibodeau is our infectious disease specialist here at York Hospital, and Dr. Hulefeld is our chief of emergency uh, medicine here at York Hospital, also medical director of the walk-in. So we're lucky to have both of them. Um, I, I consider almost Dr. Thibodeau as our Dr. Fauci here as it relates to York <laughs> Hospital, although you look nothing uh, like him and you don't act like him, but you're, <laughs> you're certainly in high demand, I think. Uh, your time has, uh, is, has been, I think, uh, overwhelmed by this, uh, this discussion. So I thank you both for um, joining us this afternoon. So we're gonna cover certainly a lot of ground. Um, and I'm just gonna jump right in with you, Dr. Thibodeau. So as you recall, our very first podcast in December of 2019, uh, we, you were literally, I think our first podcast, we were hinting at uh, this little uh, interesting situation that was happening over in China. And I remember chatting with you about it. And I think we both were looking at this with some interest. And then it kind of trickled into January when you were on the second time and we talked about it a little bit more. Uh, but here we are three, four months later, and we have this global pandemic. Our, um, our state uh, and many states in the country are on shutdown. Uh, so, so quickly, how did we get here? How did we go from a little outbreak in Wuhan, China, to this global pandemic? How did we get here? Thanks, Eric, for the introduction. So as we've talked about four months ago, uh, coronavirus is a general term for a category of viruses, and COVID-19 is the disease process that's caused by this novel virus called SARS-CoV-2. We've had other novel coronaviruses out there. There was SARS-CoV-1 back in 2002, and then we had a MERS-CoV a few years ago. So this is yet our third novel coronavirus in uh, about two decades. So what we talked about a few months ago was that it was novel. And I think right now it's, it's still novel. Uh, we've learned a lot in four months, but we still have a lot more to learn. Um, what we're hearing about is a lot of models and predictions based on the data that we have now, which is limited because it's novel. So a lot of these Models and predictions are exactly what they are, models and predictions. No one really knows what the future holds. Some unique characteristics I think I brought up before about this novel virus is its long incubation period, about 14 days, um, and the importance of asymptomatic and now pre-symptomatic shedding where individuals can have the virus and expose other individuals without any symptoms. Now that happens with other viruses as well, but this is particularly more important in a virus that has a higher mortality rate 
and higher infectivity rates. So there's a lot of epidemiological curves out there. You can compare this virus to other viruses, but it does, those are kind of some of the unique features of it that makes it unique and its ability to spread quite rapidly as it has globally. As it relates, uh, I was going to yeah, say, I was going to interrupt you. As it relates to these models that you're talking about and this ability to spread, I think one term that everybody in the country knows about now is this flattening of the curve. Six months ago, if you said that, people would look at you funny. But everyone knows now that this, uh, that this strategy of, of flattening the curve is going to make a huge difference in how we uh, navigate right the next couple months. So. Um, can you talk for a second about the concept of flattening the curve and why it's important, and then what you've noticed even in our local community with our efforts to flatten the curve and how you know how it's impacted us here in New York, yeah. Maine? Certainly. So this curve that researchers talking about it refers to the projected number of cases over a certain period of time, um, and what we want to do um, is is so-called flatten that. So I'm going to show you a figure here of a number of cases that are seen in our healthcare facilities over a certain period of time. If we can stretch that out over a longer period of time, same number of cases, longer period of time, the idea is that we won't overload our healthcare systems so that we can still continue to compare, uh, take care of COVID and non-COVID patients. So that's the whole idea of this physical distancing that we're trying to achieve is we, as a public health community, need to wear a different hat in the sense that we need to, to act as if we actually have the illness because we have that asymptomatic and presymptomatic shedding and pro practice proper physical distancing so that we can spread out the number of infections over the same period of time to not bombard our healthcare system. Does that make sense? No, I makes... really like that, yeah. Yeah, it definitely makes sense. Yeah. I think um, I think then the question becomes, as we've implemented this uh, this uh, very strict social distancing recommendations and closing of businesses and everything else, have we seen that those strategies have had a positive impact? It seems over the past one to two weeks that here in New England, New York City, Maine, even I was just on a conference call with our uh, state CDC rep, and he has shown that in Maine it is working. How much it's working and how much of those efforts, that direct correlation, we don't have that data. But it does seem early on that right now it is working. Right, right. Go ahead, Kate. I can tell you. Yeah, I know. I um, When Eric and I were talking, we uh, the antibody testing that everyone is starting to talk about, um, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. Um, so let me just back up before we get into the antibody testing because testing is a whole question in and of itself. So the, the testing is, is itself um, one of the crux of our problems with this novel virus. Mm -hmm. And one of the reasons is because it's a novel virus. We had to, not me personally, but the, you know, the scientists had to come up with a novel test to detect this virus. And over time, that test will be perfected so that we have fewer misses or false negatives. So over time, um, so right now, our test in and of itself to diagnose COVID-19 is not perfect. That's the first problem. The second problem is the reagents used in the test, the swabs used, those have all been in limited supply. So the ability to actually perform the test has also been limited. So because of that, we've had to prioritize testing to higher risk groups. So we have what's called tier one testing, which is in hospitalized patients, healthcare workers, and first responders. Those, that second and third group is because they need to get to back, back to work quickly so they can care for these susceptible patients. And then the fourth group is patients living in congregate settings. So all other folks, if they don't fall into that category, they could get tested, but the testing is going to be very delayed. Uh, they're not going to get a fast turnaround time. So that's our routine diagnostic testing telling you if you actually have the virus and you're infected with it. The antibody testing is a whole different kind of testing. There's been one test so far that's been officially approved by the FDA to detect um, an antibody. So an antibody, we use this in medicine all the time, is a blood test 
that shows if you have been infected with a virus. So we see this in measles all the time. Our healthcare workers, when they enter into employment at any healthcare facility, we check to see if they have immunity to measles, because if they didn't, we wouldn't want them potentially exposing susceptible individuals. So the antibody test, yes, there has been some antibody tests that have come out for SARS-CoV-2, but the utility of that is not quite in practice yet. We don't know if you have a positive test, how long does that positivity last for? How long are you, quote, immune to getting reinfected or infected in subsequent years? If you look at other viruses, if you get influenza one year, the second year you can still get influenza because the virus has mutated such. So we have to kind of expand what we know from other viruses and other um, infections in terms of how we interpret these antibody tests. So yes, while they're out there, and I think they've gotten a lot of press, they're not in effective practice yet. So I'm gonna, think, yeah. I'm gonna I'm gonna come back to that because as we talk about how do we get out of you know get on the other side of this curve, we're gonna talk a little bit about strategies to do that. And I think mass testing and herd immunity and vaccinations will come into play. But let's switch gears and and tap into Dr. Hulefeld for a second, who um, has been instrumental on the front line of how York Hospital is preparing uh, for patients uh, who come to our facility with. Um, uh, with respiratory symptoms as we sort out whether they have COVID-19 or not. So first of all, Dr. Hulfa, thank you for coming on and thank you for all your work you've done to best prepare our emergency department and our walk-ins to, uh, to prepare for this battle. So how, how have we at York Hospital prepared for uh, COVID patients coming to our facility? It would be difficult to uh, go over the entire list. I mean, the amount of change that we've been through since you and I last met, Eric, um, for this uh, podcast has been extraordinary. So uh, the experience of going to work, just like the experience of patients and families trying to come to the hospital, is um, 180 degrees difference from what it was uh, just four weeks ago. Um, So... The credit goes to a slew of people from the executive leadership team uh, through the ED nurse manager, Charity Neal, chief nursing officer, and then a whole bunch of rank and file um, ED providers, nurses and staff to implement changes that have been um, extraordinary. when you enter the hospital now, you are greeted at the door. There's a limited number of entrances and exits to the hospital. Essentially, from a patient perspective, there is a single entrance to your hospital. Um, you are masked immediately after being asked a series of questions in terms of the emergency department if you're seeking care with us. Um, based on what you tell us at the door, you either end up in the emergency department proper, or you end up in a uh, basically an accessory emergency department, which is a beautiful Marshall tent, uh, Marshall event tent that is set up next to our ambulance bay. Uh, it's heated. Uh, it's got a remarkable amount of electricity and IT going to it. It is uh, it is quite something. The mobilization has been extraordinary. Yeah, for sure. Uh, you mentioned the the tent. We call it the COVID tent. We call yeah. it uh, a variety of names. Uh, tell me a little bit about what the why why we want to have a, a separate kind of area. What's the goal with that? Well, so the goal is that um, we are trying to maintain business in our uh, typical emergency department. Uh, just because that we're in the middle of a pandemic doesn't mean that people are also not experiencing the the. Uh, what we, I guess, now call everyday emergencies. People are still getting injured. People are still getting uh, sick with everything they were sick with before, everything from um, surgical disease like um, gallbladder infections and appendicitis to uh, strokes and heart attacks. So we are trying to um, care for patients in physically separate, distinct areas so that we can minimize the risk to uh, patients who are seeking care and minimize the risk to our staff who have to manage both sides of that equation. Yeah, you and I both know we've had uh, people who've called ahead, people who've come to our walk-ins who are a little bit sicker than should be. And one of the feedbacks we hear is some concern uh, about going to the hospital. We'll just say that in general because they fear that that might um, expose them uh, to risk of, of getting sick. And, and how, would you, how would you respond to that concern? 
So it, it is uh, top of mind for us who provide emergency care that we need to um, provide an environment that is safe for our patients to come and seek care in. And so we have um, those patients who present classically with symptoms concerning for COVID-19 are um, separated and kept uh, physically distant from our main emergency department. Um, so I would say to anyone who feels that they have an emergency medical condition, do not stay at home, come and see us. We have taken all necessary precautions for you to get the care you need when you need it. Great. I have Great. a question, actually sure. a two-part question uh, for both uh, you and Dr. Thibodeau. So there's such a broad range of how people are presenting with this um, virus. Um, what have you been seeing at the ED um, in terms of, you know, yep. mild to super sick type of? Yep. So we have seen everything from uh, people with a mild runny nose, uh, slight cough and headache to um, near respiratory arrest. We have seen the gamut in terms of the majority of patients. If you look just at who we've tested, we've tested some 330 uh, patients who are ultimately discharged from the COVID tent or, or the sort of COVID accessory emergency department is what it's probably better uh, described as. Of those, only 30 have returned positive. Um, but we've also seen on the opposite spectrum, a smaller cohort of patients who have been presenting very, very ill, uh, immediately requiring resuscitative measures and oxygen and requiring admission to the ICU or occasionally even transfer to a higher level of care. The majority of patients have been able to go home, the vast majority. Um, and in fact, uh, as Evangela and Dr. Thibodeau noted earlier, um, we have um, been through different phases of testing. We were initially in a phase of trying to um, see when it arrived in our community. And as it arrived in our community, tracking its spread so that we, um, once we reached what we call community spread, then we basically became much more stringent with our testing um, to just testing those patients who were at highest risk for decompensating um, and for having more severe disease. So that understandably has led to some frustration. I would echo Dr. Thibodeau's um, point that testing um, has been, continues to be, and will be the end-all be-all of the effectiveness of our response as a society uh, to this uh, new virus. So, and Dr. Thibodeau, can you talk about, um, I think um, people are so surprised that it's affecting healthier adults the way that it is. Um, can you talk about why that, you know, why is that? What? Sure. And I think this, again, speaks to the novelness of this virus. Um, it's not something that a lot of physicians have experienced. Um, there, there's a wide range of presentations. So I echo what Rob has, Dr. Hulefeld has said in the sense that these patients, most are fine and they actually have a very mild disease course. And that's what's happening in Maine as well. The Maine CDC said that about 80% of the infections in Maine, and I would say, even though our numbers are small at York Hospital, it's probably about similar. 80% of the cases that we've diagnosed through York Hospital, or again, in the state of Maine is what the, Dr. Shaw has said, have been mild. And then you have that 15 to 20% of cases that go on to have a very severe course. And what that severe course looks like is different among different populations. And we do know there's risk factors that put someone at risk for having a more severe course, such as being elderly or having other chronic medical conditions, specifically lung conditions. But we have seen outliers in the sense that we've seen young, healthy people come in and have a very severe course. So being able to predict that um, is where we need to rely on some of the ongoing studies and the science that's going on right now to figure out how we can develop tools to predict who will be these sick individuals that will go on to develop a severe course. I can tell you anecdotally from the cases that we've uh, seen at York Hospital, we've had 13 patients as of today hospitalized at York Hospital and over 30 patients, 30 to 40, including about nine healthcare workers, that have tested positive in the outpatient setting. 
I've personally called many of these patients to give them test results. And in the outpatient setting, many have, have done quite well and have had a very mild course and have specifically used the words, I've felt much sicker. So mm. I think the what we're seeing is what everyone's seeing is that there's a wide range. And again, there's a lot of unknowns about this virus that are to be discovered. And are we hearing that, uh, or are you seeing that some are having the upper respiratory and then others are having like stomach? It's going right to their stomach, like almost, almost bypassing the upper respiratory or? I would say the majority of the patients have some sort of respiratory symptom. Mm -hmm. Any virus uh, can, in, when you get infected with a virus, it can infect multiple organ systems, including the gastrointestinal tract. So many viruses do present with symptoms such as nausea or vomiting or diarrhea. That's not the norm. I think SARS-CoV-2 is a respiratory virus. That's where it, it from the, from the uh, biology of this, it does in, infect the respiratory tract. Manifesting as GI symptoms without respiratory symptoms is unusual, but yes, it can happen. There's going to be outliers in, in every scenario, but I would say majority of these cases have had respiratory symptoms, but we are starting to expand our testing criteria to look for some of these outliers. So let's, uh, let's take that to the treatment part. Let's talk to both Dr. Hulefeld. When patients present to the ER that look like they're going to be admitted, so those 15% those or so folks, um, what therapies and treatments do we institute initially on presentation? And then maybe Dr. Thibodeau can pick up some of the things we're doing inpatient, right? Because there's no, there's no great uh, therapies that have been fully vetted and tested yet, but there are a lot of investigational therapies that we're looking at. You hear about chloroquine and, and drugs like that. Uh, so we'll start with Dr. Hulefeld a little bit, like how we're managing these folks acutely. And then maybe Dr. Thibodeau can pick up some of the things we're doing here at York Hospital that that are in, uh, we're following protocols and guidelines that are shared from some of our affiliates and, and neighboring hospitals. So from a um, acute care perspective, um, as Evangeline just kind of hinted at there, care for these folks is largely supportive. So we are, um, most of these folks that we're admitting to the hospital have a new oxygen requirement. So we are applying oxygen to them to varying degrees. Um, the sickest of them are requiring uh, not just oxygen and repositioning um, and that kind of non-invasive support, but the sickest of them are also requiring mechanical ventilation. So that means putting a tube down and putting them on a machine to help support their breathing and maintain appropriate oxygen levels. Um, we're also, for those that um, have um, complicating illnesses or dehydration, we're administering things like IV fluids or if we're concerned there's a complicating bacterial pneumonia, then we're administering um, antibiotics as well. It is, um, to Dr. Thibodeau's point before, this is something we've not seen before. And unlike um, seasonal influenza or more common bacterial infections that we've seen historically, we do not have a specific therapeutic agent um, that we are administering up front in the emergency department to get the ball rolling and to get ahead of this. We are basically supporting folks through this while their immune system continues to battle this primarily. Right, right. Dr. Thibodeau, what about, um, you know, the, 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 the thoughts on, uh, you know, some of these antiviral therapies, immunotherapy, um, chloroquine, which is an anti-malarial drug that you hear folks talk about. Uh, where are we at with those types of, of treatments? Sure. So there are no approved treatments for COVID-19. There's nothing that's been officially FDA approved or in routine practice yet, but there are a lot of clinical trials out there. There's a lot of studies. There's some anecdotal and early evidence coming out of China and even now coming out of the United States uh, regarding marginal effectiveness in maybe decreasing the duration of illness, but again, there's really no cure. So I'll kind of outline some of, the, some of the therapies you may have heard about. So remdesivir is an antiviral drug. It's a novel antiviral that was actually studied to be used during the Ebola crisis, but, but not used. And so now it's being studied in SARS-CoV-2. And there has been some 
promise that it might help. Again, it's not going to be a cure, but it may decrease the disease course, may decrease some viral shedding, make people improve faster, which again, in some of these critically ill patients, days will matter. So that is being investigated largely at tertiary care medical centers that can enroll patients in large clinical trials. So at your hospital, we are not using remdesivir. We have applied for so-called compassionate use through Gilead, the manufacturer of this drug, um, and have yet to use it. If we do feel that someone is ill enough and they may warrant enrollment in a clinical trial, then we're often transferring them to a tertiary care center that could offer that to them. So that's remdesivir, the novel antiviral. The second one that you've heard a lot about is chloroquine or hydroxychloroquine, which is the cousin of chloroquine that no longer is um, used in the United States, but hydroxychloroquine is. It is a drug that is used to treat many autoimmune diseases currently. There's many patients on it now. They seek benefit from it. And there was some evidence that maybe it decreases some shedding of SARS-CoV-2. And again, there's ongoing clinical trials uh, at um, these large tertiary care centers looking at the effectiveness of hydroxychloroquine. Hydroxychloroquine has a lot of side effects, particular cardiac side effects, and particularly in the elderly. So we ha you have to proceed with caution if you're going to use this drug uh, in treatment for COVID-19 because of a lot of the side effects that it may, it may pose. So what we're doing at York Hospital is, again, since we can't enroll individuals in a clinical trial, we have leaned on some of our partner institutions and uh, joined heads with some other uh, local hospitals and how they're proceeding where we may not be able to transfer the patients, but we may be able to offer them something. We have come up with some protocols that other like institutions are using in when we recommend the use of hydroxychloroquine with strict guidance on how you would monitor for those side effects. Um, and how and and you know how you would monitor them um, after they complete the therapy as well. So those are the two major drugs that have have received a lot of attention. There's also some other uh, immune modulatory medications that are used in clinical trials. These are drugs that are often used for illnesses such as rheumatoid arthritis, and again, those are in clinical trial as well to get it not the actual uh, viral infection, but to modify the immune response, which is what we're seeing in some of these severe cases. It's not the actual viral infection that's causing the breathing problems. It's actually the immune's response to the viral infection that's overloading the body. And so if we can get at it that way by modulating the immune system, that's the theory that perhaps that could give an, an infected individual a better outcome. But again, those are all part of large clinical trials and we have not used that at York Hospital. So similar to what's going on, um, I think uh, York Hospital is just amazed by the outpouring of community support and we'll get to that later in the, in the podcast. But are we, um, are we uh, collaborating with um, MGH and other um, neighboring hospitals to um, share equipment or um, refer patients or how are we working with uh, our community hosp neighboring hospitals and MGH? Yeah, I think, you know, I think healthcare workers are a pretty amazing group of individuals. They all, we all feel that we're, you know, all in this together, as everyone has been saying. From a organizational standpoint, we have been communicating with our local hospitals, and certainly we've been transferring some of our ill patients to receive some more tertiary care um, medicine while that is still available to us, um, the, the possibility of transferring. In terms of specific protocols, we have partnered with MGH. We're able to listen into some of their podcasts, use some of their protocols, but again, they're a very different institution than us. They are a large tertiary care center who sees thousands of patients, whereas we are a small community hospital. So using those guidelines and adapting them to a place such as ours is, you know, has been a bit of a challenge, but so I think everyone in healthcare has been willing to share their resources because everyone wants everyone else to do well and, and 
and benefit from the information that's out there. Just to piggy, yeah. just to piggyback on that, Kate, I would say uh, from the leadership perspective at York Hospital, it, there's something like a little pandemic to get some historic rivalries uh, to go away. <laughs> uh, there have been extraordinary conversations uh, between York Hospital with uh, not just our typical clinical affiliate, Mass General, but also with Maine Health, as well as with uh, Wentworth Douglas and HCA. And to watch the conversations between HCA and Wentworth Douglas have also been uh, interesting. Um, so yes, there is a lot of collaboration. There's talk about shared resources. Um, as we mentioned earlier, th there is a uh, significant minority of patients who require critical care. Critical care beds and critical care capacity has been the focus of some of those conversations on how do we manage that resource regionally not individually. So I've been very heartened by those uh, conversations to know that we are not alone in this. Uh, if we need help, help is available locally as well as regionally. That's great to hear, really. Yeah, right. yeah. And on the topic of resources, Rob, while you're, while you're talking about that, let's talk about the resources at York Hospital uh, and, and how the surge uh, uh, has impacted us. Where are we at with you know, ICU beds, hospital beds, ventilators, and have we reached any sort of, of concerning volume where those resources have been tight? I am looking for any and all wood to knock on right now around the area. <laughs> we'll do it for I, you. <laughs> thank you. Uh, so I would say that we have... Um, we are very fortunate right now to not have had some of those nightmare scenarios come true yet. We have um, capacity on our inpatient, uh, both our regular general medical uh, units as well as our ICU to manage this. So I would say we have the message that the public should hear is that York Hospital has the capacity to manage them and their loved ones, both for their um, non-COVID acute medical conditions as well as COVID-related illnesses. So uh, we are open and able to manage whatever comes our way. Yeah, and so I, I just think it's important to point out what, one of the things your hospital has done to um, best care for all types of patients is they've taken a portion of the hospital inpatient side, right, and dedicated that to patients who are COVID positive or suspected COVID and waiting for a test. And then they've maintained another part of the hospital for those non-COVID patients. Is that, that fair to say? That is absolutely correct. I would say the challenge with caring for this population is that we have to take extraordinary precautions of both ourselves as healthcare providers and for the other patients in the hospital. And we've done a good job sort of sequestering the care of those patients with dedicated staffing for the, that, those areas, as well as a great allocation of personal protective equipment, which is something that most folks have heard a lot about uh, in the media. Um, we have done a great job maintaining those resources as well as maintaining our capacity to manage patients um, on both ends. So Sure, sure. And I think the other thing that we've... Uh, those other measures we've taken is um, we're limiting visitors, of course, which does make it challenging at times, but it's for the protection of, of all staff and patients as well. And I think we're following suit uh, with what nearly every hospital is doing uh, in, in terms of limiting those folks who enter the facility. Absolutely. Like these are, this has been some of the most difficult part for us at York Hospital. We pride ourselves on having radically open access for patients and families at York Hospital. That's been uh, one of our real distinguishers or distinctions as uh, in the healthcare market uh, regionally. Um, we look forward the, to the day when we can resume that kind of um, access. Uh, but right now for the safety of everyone at large and of our staff, we have taken the appropriate measures in conjunction and with the guidance and leadership of folks like Evangeline, as well as the main CDC um, and national recommendations. So, have yeah. we started talking about, um, or what do you think about where the peak is or when the peak is going to be um, here at the hospital in Maine and kind of beyond that? Evangeline, I'll, I'll defer to you. Sure. I mean, again, these, what I talked about before, these are models and predictions that is not science. I mean, it's right. science in a sense, but it's not, it's not historical data that we can we can rely on. So uh, if you talked to me a week ago, we said the, the peak was going to be 
April 17th, which is in two days from now. I can tell you anecdotally over the past week, our cases at York Hospital in and of itself have gone, new cases per day have gone down. And that's what's happened as well in the state. The number of new cases per day has was starting to go down, but now the number of new cases are actually starting to be popping up in these long-term care facilities, some nursing homes, some congregate living type setting. So that peak might be a different peak than what we see as a hospital peak. So for now, we're prepared to have a peak any day, as Dr. Hulefeld mentioned, in terms of how we've prepared our hospital for that peak. We're ready for a surge. Whether we get one or not, we're, we're just waiting. Um, the, in terms of preparing um, for, uh, sorry, I thought you were asking about reopening, but that's another question. <laughs> so I, well, I, I think right that's, now. I think that, that I, I, it's a perfect time to, I guess, cover that. Cause as we talk about, and you hear this on the news, everybody is um, asking about this and I'm not going to be, I'm not going to ask either one of you the very unfair question of when that could be, because I think it's yeah. really difficult to answer. But yeah. say we get to that point, what, from a, from a organizational standpoint, from a medical standpoint, what are some of the strategies? We talked about some mass testing and ramping that up and the value of antibody testing and those things. But, but both of you, if you want to touch on, you know, uh, you know, vaccinations, herd immunity, how long do we distance ourselves? Just talk about how do we get, let's just say, back to normal. I won't ask you when, but how do we get yeah. back to normal? And we won't ask you to define normal because I'm yeah. feeling like it's probably a different <laughs> definition. Yeah. Yeah. So I think just like, just like timing the peak uh, of this, a lot depends on the ongoing social distancing that we are seeing um, in society. Um, so predicting when we will go back to uh, business as usual is gonna be really challenging and absolutely, Kate, your point, it, uh, we have no idea what the new normal will look like. Um, our strategy, Eric, will depend significantly on um, making testing more widely available so that we can safely reopen all the services that we hope to be physically open for. York Hospital has done a great job of moving a lot of services to a telemedical platform. Um, and it's been great to see that embraced by our patient communities. Um, but there are some things that we cannot do telemedically that patients need. Um, and so getting to that point is gonna depend significantly on one, guidance from a state CDC level, two, developments regionally to see uh, that um, current hotspots that are nearby us have closed, have quieted down a bit. Um, and three, the um, not quite commercialization, but the liberalization of testing so that we can figure out how to appropriately uh, and again safely uh, reopen our services. Evangeline, Does that I would look optimistic, would, the testing? The widespread testing? So, so, so yes and no. So necessarily, uh, so the, the great example in the state of Maine is Abbott, which is um, a uh, biomedical testing company that is actually located in the state of Maine. Um, and yet uh, we have had a difficult time procuring those tests because they are necessarily, and as much as it's begrudging to say it appropriately, spending, sending most of their um, rapid test kits to neighboring states where the burden of this disease is much higher. Um, you know, the state of Maine has had uh, maybe 20 deaths so far, Kate, and whereas the state of Massachusetts, um, they are measuring their new deaths uh, in many multiples of that, uh, like a hundred at a time. So um, we are optimistic that as things, um, as they ramp up production and as hopefully neighboring states quiet down a little bit, that we will have um, um, improved access to it. Again, you, you mentioned um, uh, local partnerships and cooperation. Martin's Point has generously uh, allocated some of their Abbott test results to us. So we are starting to see some encouraging signs. I think both Dr. Thibodeau and I would say it's not where we want it to be, but there are some um, uh, hints that give us hope. 
Angel, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but that's how I feel about it. Yeah, uh, I, I agree with everything that you've said. Just to back up a minute, what what, a, what is a so-called peak? And that kind of highlights what Dr. Hulefeld said, is that a peak is when you the number of new cases per day stops rising. So, and that's what we're, we're really looking at some of our neighboring states like New York City and New York State and Massachusetts and when their peak is and if we're really in the wake of that peak. So number of new cases per day, if you had 10 cases yesterday, then you had 15 cases, new cases today, then 20 cases today, you want, and again, that goes back to flattening of the curve, you want that number to be spread out over time. So when we're, we're reaching that peak is, um, again, relates to our testing capacity as well, because we have to have testing to accommodate for that influx of cases. Uh, I want to also just step back and say something that we briefly touched on, which is the telehealth and how important that's been in um, all of this, because it, it, it's interesting that I think telehealth has always been a, an attractive field in medicine, but not implemented. And it basically took a pandemic for people to realize how effective it is. And it's really been, been wonderful. We've been using it in the outpatient clinics, the walk-ins, um, wound care. We've really been able to uh, use that technology to get patients. It doesn't replace the in the the value you have with a patient in the office, but it's in the times that we have that is has been a great tool to have. So I think moving on to when are we going to reopen or how what does that look like? Uh, everything that we've been doing during this pandemic, everything's happened sooner than I've kind of anticipated, except for the past week, I would say. But a lot of things we're trying to get ahead of it. So that's why we're not ready to reopen the hospital tomorrow, but we are starting to think that way because we are just really trying to get on top of things and be prepared for whatever next phase is coming. So what would that look like at York Hospital? It would certainly be a gradual introduction of essential and then a tiered approach of what's less essential going going kind of down the ladder in terms of, of how we reopen services to people. And I think that um, the importance that we're going to have to lean on is our public health system in terms of what's called contact tracing, because that's how we're going to move through this pandemic going forward until we have a vaccine, is that once some of the physical distancing measures have been relaxed, when people start to not only enter the medical community, but enter our regular community, if someone is sick, we need to get that person out as quickly or get them sequestered at home until as, as quickly as possible. So having that testing is really integral to that process in terms of getting that patient diagnosed quickly, getting them home, and then leaning on our public health department to properly trace any contact that person has been in contact with so that they are also quarantined. So this is this process, this is how I kind of envision our future over the next few months. Again, I no one can predict the future, but this is what some of the models are saying, that we will be relaxing some social distancing measures with a close monitoring of the disease course and, and, and how it's going to kind of pan out in terms, in, in conjunction with creating a vaccine and adequate therapies to, to kind of get ahead of it. So that's how I envision it from an infectious disease standpoint, that I think that COVID-19 is going to be with us for a long time and that we're going to have to kind of get used to some of these, these different ways of life, including telehealth and some of the other you know, Zoom platforms people are using in terms of non-healthcare workers. So I think that um, it, it's interesting how quickly it was launched at the beginning of this pandemic, but I don't think it's going to go away. I think we're going to continue to, to act in this capacity in some way for many months. So yeah. possibly years. In addition to the uh, social distancing, one of the things that has evolved over time is the use of masking, right? So uh, now when all healthcare workers at York Hospital wear a mask uh, whenever they're working, um, when, when patients walk into the hospital, they're given masks. Uh, but now when you go to the grocery store and you go to Hannaford, you see uh, the public wearing masks and there has been some discussions about universal masking. Um, what is your thoughts on the utility and efficacy of universal masking? Sure. So 
to, to talk about the recommendation for masking, you really have to understand the pathogenesis of this disease. So this is, like I said, a respiratory virus. So it's predominantly spread when someone coughs or sneezes in front of you and those droplets land on you. That's gonna give you the highest exposure to virus if someone's you know, coughing right in your face. Uh, there's other ways the virus can be transmitted. The, you can cough and sneeze, and we do think there's evidence that that virus can kind of hang around in the air for a bit, for you know even a couple hours. So if you were in a room and you coughed, and then another individual walked in that room, it's possible that they could be infected just by breathing that air. The third way is uh, through fomites. So fomites is when the virus lands on surfaces, mostly metal, uh, plastics, those these viruses can survive on these surfaces for long periods of time, even up to a day or two. Uh, it can also survive on other objects such as paper and cloth, but not as long. So the idea behind masking is to protect those viral particles from coming out of your mouth and onto someone else. So when you wear a mask, these cloth masks, if they're not medical grade masks, they really don't have the proper filters in place to protect you from getting exposed from someone else. But what they potentially can do is they can decrease some of that transmission of you coughing on someone else or in the instance of you having no symptoms or a couple days prior to the onset of symptoms, you didn't know you were gonna get sick. If you're wearing a mask, it could potentially act as a barrier of you infecting someone else. So that's the kind of idea behind the masks. It's not perfect if everyone could wear the the medical grade masks if we had a, a abundant supply of medical grade masks and everyone wore them then you know it's possible that we could drastically decrease the transmission of this virus but we're not there yet in terms of supply and that's probably just not practical uh, the other thing with these cloth masks is that when they're on your face they uh it it subconsciously people touch their masks, touch their face. I, you know, I touch my face all the time throughout the day. It's, it's something that you do without really realizing it. So especially when you have a mask on, you're always adjusting it, you know, you're not breathing properly, so you might kind of move it. So if you're going to wear a mask in that setting, we strongly encourage you don't touch the mask because your hands may have touched your mouth and then you touch the mask and then you may go on and touch a doorknob. So in conjunction with the mask recommendation, it's almost more important to wash your hands because not only does this, like I said, it spreads through cough particles, but if you cough on a doorknob or some an infected individual coughs on a doorknob, you touch that doorknob, it's then on your hand, then you go touch your face. It's that's kind of how the cycle works. So mask wearing is is it, it can be helpful, but it has to be done in conjunction with good hand hygiene, which has been emphasized throughout this whole course. Yep. Um, it, it's really interesting on the, just as a side note, when I study for my infectious disease boards, people kind of joke and say, this is historical, that, you know, when in doubt, the answer is wash your hands when you're picking a That's test. So, so, so that has been something that we in infectious disease have kind of prized ourselves on that we are always good stewards of hand washing. So it really shouldn't take a pandemic to to escalate people's levels of hand washing, but but I, I think that's what it's come to. I think it's interesting. I, I suspect the traditional handshake may may not be in existence anymore after this pandemic. People have tossed that idea around too. Just um, unless everyone's carrying around a bottle of hand sanitizer with them that they wash their hands after they if they after they shake someone's hand. So I think that's where that. Sorry for that winded explanation, but I think the mask wearing it's not just a a fix-all situation, you really have to understand the science behind it before you go ahead and just put a mask on. Yep. It is a combination of, of factors for sure. So you both touched on this, but where is the most reliable, um, so where should people be getting their information about COVID-19? What's the most reliable source of information? I know the hospital has uh, a COVID-19 um, site attached to our website. Um, that's been really helpful. I think the CDC is wonderful. They really break it down to the general public level. They break it down to school systems and small businesses and then healthcare professionals. That's where I go for a lot of my guidance is through the hospital and healthcare um, 
sections of the CDC. I also use other more medical related sources of my information, but I think for the general public, CDC is always reliable. Okay. May not be as up to date, but it might not be, you know, their, their resources are limited, but they definitely have the right information out there. Agreed. And then I would just offer a caution that um, there is a lot of information and um, this will continue to dominate every news feed uh, for the foreseeable future. And so the advice that I'm giving my family and friends is um, if if you have the TV or the radio on or uh, your news feed on all day, you're gonna have a nervous breakdown. So please consume it in bite sizes. Um, consider your mental well-being as well. So. Yeah, that's a good point. We call it the infodemic instead of the pandemic yeah. for sure. Uh, I know both of you have to get back to work soon, um, but so we're gonna start to wind this down, but just a couple more questions. Uh, PPE has been a hot topic on the news. Everyone is in short supply. It seems like you hear about these horror stories of, of unprotected medical workers and, and folks and putting patients at risk and healthcare workers at risk. Rob, maybe give us a quick uh, summary of where your hospital's at with PPE and how we're protecting our our caregivers uh, and our staff. I would say thanks to the very hard work of folks like Paul Williamson in our materials department and from regional collaborations, uh, whether with the Maine CDC, the Portsmouth Naval Shipyard, um, or uh, others in the area, we are currently, again, knock on any wood you can find, we are currently able to provide for our front care workers uh, to do their jobs safely. Like everyone, we are carefully monitoring our inventory. We have twice daily meetings uh, in which inventory of all of these items is uh, top of mind and reviewed uh, down to uh, the individual face mask, gown, face shield, um, and even the sanitary wipes we use to decontaminate surfaces. So we are uh, obsessively monitoring uh, our supply so that we can attend to the very real anxiety of our front care work, frontline workers and the very real need to protect them so that they can do their job. Awesome, awesome. Is there Great. any question that you two can think of before we sign off that we've missed that might be important to include? Uh, I would say, um, I would say, uh, the question or the answer, I would, one of the things I would love to talk about has been the incredible, incredible outpouring of support, uh, that healthcare workers, uh, not just at York hospital, but, uh, regionally and nationally and internationally have received, uh, during this pandemic. So, uh, I think from all of us, a thank you, uh, is in order. I agree. Uh, I agree. Great, great. So last question then, um, if you are, the current recommendation, people, our phones ring off the hook at the practices, at the hospital, at the walk-ins about, um, uh, I don't feel well, what do I do? Rob, real quick, um, who stays home? Who comes to the walk-in? Who comes to the emergency room? Kind of how do how we triage that out? We'll, we'll sign off with that last question. You got it. So I would say if you enjoy good health and are not in one of the sort of vulnerable populations that has been very well described, so um, elderly, uh, underlying medical conditions, including underlying lung conditions, diabetes, heart disease, hypertension, if you are lucky enough not to um, have any of those problems, um, we are recommending that you stay home and continue to monitor your symptoms. If, however, you are in one of the higher risk populations and are concerned that you're having more severe symptoms, we ask you to call your doctor or to call ahead to the emergency department and come and see us. We are best equipped to manage you in the emergency department at York Hospital. We are uh, preferentially treating minor non-COVID illness in our walk-in facilities in person or by telehealth with your primary care provider or telehealth at the walk-ins. So, Evangelum, Dr. Thibodeau, what did I miss? <laughs> I think that's it. I, I, I think the conversation and the what I've been talking to a lot of these outpatients that have tested positive is that the severe cases are typically about a week into their disease course. So if we, and that's, again, that's not hard science, but that's what's observed, is that 
the ones that are going to get that severe immunological reaction requiring ICU level care and, and, and very aggressive medical care are typically presenting about seven days into symptom onset. So if you feel that you've had a cold for two to three weeks, you're on the mend, you know, that those are, that's very reassuring. If you're kind of in that window of maybe I'm a week in and I'm not getting better or I'm certainly getting worse, some of the warning signs we tell people is shortness of breath, pain, uh, fever that you cannot control. If you're, if you're not going in the right trajectory on a week into your disease course, that would be a time to call ahead, discuss the symptoms, talk about your other comorbidities with your provider in terms of if you feel that it's necessary to be seen or not. So that's, that's the only addition I'd add to that is that these outpatient uh, test these outpatients that I've been talking to, that's how I've counseled them going forward because they want some reassurance and we want to reassure people that again, 80% of these cases are going to be mild and recover with full health. So that is the norm. But again, we want to caution people about warning signs to look for in some of these more severe cases. Great. Great way to wrap it up. What do you think, Kate? Did we cover it? I think we did. Awesome. So for both of you, um, I work with you very closely. I'm in all your meetings twice a day. I can't thank you enough for your leadership, uh, your hard work, your dedication, your courage, uh, and, and everything you've done to support not only us uh, caregivers and staff, but also our community here at York Hospital. So Dr. Thibodeau, Dr. Hulefeld, thank you very much from the bottom of my heart. Appreciate it. Thank you all. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. Thanks. Thank Take you. Care. All right. So Kate, you and I are going to go right into a little wrap up here and talk about this. I, I don't know if it's a little wrap up because there's so much that we can, man, we can talk I about have gone here. on and on and on. Yeah. I, um, I will say that, uh, uh, before I, I think one of the things we'd like to, uh, talk about here at the end of this is the outpouring of support from our community and, and local businesses and, and, and the towns and, and all the, uh, community members who have reached out and support us. But before we get to that, I think to me, uh, one of the important things to uh, highlight is that York Hospital is open for business. It is here to support the community. Uh, there are many ways to access our resources. Um, the primary care offices are open uh, and available to see patients. You can call your primary care office. You can set up a virtual visit. Uh, they are letting um, patients um, come into the office if you are well. There's a screening process for that, but if you have any questions, uh, please call your local PCP. Also, other services are available, physical therapy, occupational therapy, and speech therapy. Katie Dodge's team is, is uh, ready and available to take care of you. There's several ways that you can get those needs uh, taken care of, whether you're post-operatively or or in need of those services, the best number to uh, set those up are area code 207, of course, 752-8641. Our specialty practices are seeing patients, um, whether they be virtually or select patients being seen in person, but uh, your hospital is open and is available uh, for all of your healthcare needs. So that was important for us to um, get out on this podcast as well. I think Dr. Hulefeld and Dr. Thibodeau talked about that as well. Um, anything yeah. that you want to add to that piece or other things that, that you uh, took away from this conversation? Yeah, I mean, there was, I don't know if there were other questions that we could have um, asked, but I feel like we covered kind of the gamut for sure. Um, and hopefully it will be helpful for those people listening out in the community that are nervous and unsure about how this is all going to play out for us. And I, I do think there will be a new norm. Yeah, uh, no I've doubt. been practicing my handshake, my yeah. new handshake, you know, that's, that's going to be your go-to the, uh, a little prayer. Yeah. yeah. And awesome. bow. Yeah. I, uh, I'll share a quick little story just to kind of highlight the value of the telehealth. So my mom is a patient of Dr. Adams and um, two weeks ago had a uh, previously booked uh, follow-up, annual follow-up visit, and obviously it got flipped 
to a telehealth offering. And my mother, who's a retired nurse, a healthcare provider who's in her um, late 70s, called me up and said, uh, Dr. Adams office called and they want me to do this uh, telehealth thing uh, and it doesn't sound attractive to me I'm intimidated or overwhelmed by that uh, technology that you know that's not my thing uh, and I said mom we're, let's let's do this let's take advantage of this and use this as a learning opportunity so we connected her um, and squared it away and like any good patient she had created her list of questions she wanted to ask Dr. Adams and we got her all teed up for that visit and I got to witness from afar with social distancing and I had my mask on uh, my mother's visit with Dr. Adams via uh, a telehealth connection and it was incredibly uh, enriching. It was powerful to watch. She was able to have all of her questions answered. There was a, a great dialogue back and forth between the two of them that felt um, as if you were there in person. Yeah, Dr. Adams couldn't lay hands on her and listen to her heart or listen to her breast sounds or anything like that. And because this was a routine follow-up visit, probably wasn't as important as just touching base with her about how she was feeling and how her medications were going and all that sort of thing. And and she hung up the call and she was, I think, blown away uh, by how um, good she felt about it. So I share that as an anecdote that uh, uh, these things have gone really well. I think yesterday we did over 400 telehealth visits at York Hospital just to show you the outreach. So wow, that's uh, amazing. Yeah, as a listener yeah. out there, if you're intimidated by this, please don't be. Um, plenty of folks that can help you set that up and and uh, and have a successful telehealth connection. So uh, that is a segue, Kate. I want you to take off with the uh, with a little bit of a discussion on the community support that your hospital has received. I'm going to let you kind of run with that and talk a little bit about um, really the the impact that's had. So what do you got? So we have been keeping track of all the items coming into the hospital. We have um, an incredible team from patient supplies to volunteer services, friend raising, um, caregivers experiences, um, and the donations range. We're not going to list anyone specifically, um, but they range from food and beverage to homemade masks. Um, I, yesterday, I even picked up some masks extenders for those people that are feeling tightness yep. uh, around their ears, um, oil changes, free oil changes for caregivers, flowers, um, cards and notes of support in abundance, um, keep them coming. Um, we even had um, a company um, offer free um, hand cream because we're using so much hand sanitizer and our, our hands are getting chapped. Um, I guess I'd like to, there are three or three or four um, organizations that have kind of um, gone above and beyond. Um, we have the Portsmouth Naval Shipyard who's been helping with the face shields, uh, York Rotary and all that they've done, Atlantic Orthodonture uh, Center, which um, donated gloves and masks and that. I couldn't believe how much they had in stock. Um, and then YCSA, your Community Service Association, teamed up with uh, Stonewall Kitchen, and they have created a chocolate cake award. Um, and we were the third um, organization to um, be presented a chocolate cake last week. And it was presented to our leader team who um, has been doing a great job leading the way, but it was to be shared with everyone um, who has been fighting the good fight here. So um, it's just been amazing. I've been taking calls um, and others in the teams that I mentioned already have been taking calls. And I believe that you can access on one of our web pages, yes. right? The list of the donors and stuff. Do you have that um, at yes. your fingertips there? Yeah. Oh, um, so it is. Um, the York Hospital COVID-19, and yep. it's caring for all funds. So we are looking for donations for anyone who would like to donate, uh, would like to donate um, toward the fund. Um, but it is the York Hospital COVID-19 site off our main website, yorkhospital.com. Got it. Yeah, yeah, I was in I was in Wells yesterday in one of the local restaurants in uh, I think it was Ogunquit or Moody had 
had sent food over to both the Wells facility and the Sanford. That's one example of, of the countless uh, food donations that uh, local businesses have fed our caregivers. Uh, I think there are several folks, uh, several businesses where if you show your, your hospital ID, you can get a free cup of coffee. I think it's some of the local. So it's been really, really it's tremendous. Been amazing. Yes, yeah. it has. Yeah. I'm looking forward to the day, Eric, when my, uh, full force volunteers are back. They are so itching uh, to get to get back at it. Um, we do have meal delivery. Um, we have volunteers helping with um, grocery shopping and prescription um, pickup. So that has been, that team has actually continued through all of this. Um, right now we're helping almost between 70 and 80 um, people out in the community and it continues to climb. I continue to get requests through our Bridges program on a daily basis. So thank you to all the volunteers who have remained active in those roles. All the other roles have been suspended for the time being. Sure, sure. And and just uh, to piggyback on your last, uh, so yorkhospital.com backslash give uh, if you want to uh, make a donation to this uh, COVID fund here at York Hospital would be certainly greatly, greatly appreciated. We started this uh, project, Kate, you and I, almost five months ago. And uh, uh, one of the things that we had talked about was that both of our daughters who are the same age um, uh, uh, played uh, college lacrosse locally and they were set to play each other I think it would have been this past weekend and obviously yeah. that uh, all the college kids have gone home and, and doing distance learning and, and spring sports had uh, had been canceled and uh, Gabby my my daughter turned 21 yesterday uh, so had a quarantine had a, yeah had a quarantine birthday which was different so uh, uh, I never thought that um, uh, that we'd be where we are today, but uh, what a great opportunity to get back on this podcast and thank you to Darcy Productions and Jody Merrill and the marketing team at York Hospital for uh, allowing us to get uh, back online, so to speak. I thought this might be one of those because of physical distancing and everything else going on that uh, this project would be suspended as well, but what a what a great opportunity we had to come back on and, and get some information out to our listeners and, and out to the York community. I'm so glad we have the opportunity to do this. And my daughter too, Emma, turned 21 at the start of all of this. So um, anyways, all the birthdays will have to be celebrated after the fact, or you just have to go big for the next one, I guess. Sure, sure. Yeah. Well, uh, let's, uh, let's sign off and uh, get everyone back to work. And um, again, Kate, always a pleasure. I missed you when I had to do one of these by myself. So glad, to, glad to have you back. I didn't like that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but it, and, is, it is good to be back, yes. even if it's on Zoom. That's right. That's right. So uh, thanks again. And uh, thanks to all of our listeners for listening in and uh, uh, look for new episodes coming soon. That's right. Thank you, Eric. You Take good care. All right. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Seatown. We hope you found it of interest and would love to hear from you about topics you'd like to learn more about. Be sure to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also find episodes by clicking Seatown button on the homepage of yorkhospital.com. By listening to this podcast, you're agreeing not to use this podcast as medical advice to treat any medical condition in either yourself or others, including but not limited to patients that you are treating. Consult your own provider for any medical issues that you may be having. Seatown is a production of Darcy Creative in collaboration with York Hospital. Copyright 2020.